Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 32. This is the word of the Lord. Give it your full attention. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you for graciously bringing us to this place tonight for the purpose of being strengthened and edified by your word, encouraged by fellow saints. We pray that you would help us to bow our knees to your word. Help us, Lord, to submit, submit to you, submit to your commands. Let us not, Lord, run from the idea, nor be afraid of the teaching of bowing our knee. For in bowing our knee, Lord, we bow our knee to you. God, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. I decrease so that you may increase, become less so that you and you alone can become more. Be glorified for the glory of God and for the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Let me say, as we begin, if you leave here and you have questions, myself and the elders, we welcome your questions. We welcome your phone calls. Please do not leave here with questions and not talk to anybody about them. Please take advantage of the accessibility of your elders. Please, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to ask. Last week, we began our series with our first lesson in family discipleship, male headship. We learned that God's design and God's will for the husband is to be the head of the household. He is the leader of his family, the priest of his home. He is charged with the care, provision, protection, and also the discipleship of his family. That is his responsibility. The man is the head and leader of his home. He will either lead effectively or he will lead poorly. But he will lead. And a man's failure to lead is a man who is leading in failure. A man's failure to lead is a man who is leading in failure. Leadership is not an option. Your headship, men, is not an option. It is the design and purpose of God. And that's what we established last week. God charged the man to lead. And I'm sure the question is, as we established man's 
headship, man's leadership, I'm sure the question that should be on all of our minds is, how do I do that? Probably the greatest question that those who believe in the biblical teaching of male headship struggle to answer is, I believe that, hopefully men and hopefully women, I believe that, how do I do that? And how do I do it to the glory of God? I want you to think about something. It's, it's a sobering reality. It's a sobering fact that in our society, in our culture, in our world even, there is no job wherein a man would be disqualified from leadership because of his failure to lead in his home. There are no jobs where a man is disqualified from his job because he's failing to lead in his home. No jobs. We exalt men in this culture in spite of the, of their failure to lead. We exalt men in spite of their adulteries. We exalt men in, in spite of their multiple divorces. We exalt men in, in spite of their dereliction as fathers. Doctors, lawyers, judges, even presidents are not disqualified from their position in spite of their failures of being a husband and being a father. Doesn't disqualify them. There's no job in this country where a man is disqualified from leadership except for one. And that's what I'm doing right now. The only job that disqualifies you from leading if you are failing as a husband and failing as a father is the responsibility or the calling of being a pastor elder. We are held to to different standards and rightfully so. And not only is is failure to lead in the home a disqualifier for the ministry, but it also is one of the qualifiers for the ministry. A husband who is an exemplary father or exemplary husband. That's one of his qualifiers to lead. Look into his home. Look at his kids. And if all is going well there, that is one of the qualifications for his ability or his at least qualifying to lead in the church. According to Titus 1, 6, 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5, being an exemplary husband. And father qualifies you, is one of the qualifiers for the work of the ministry. Perfect men, not at all, but men who love God in spite of their failures. And yes, they are leading. It is a standard of God. It, it, it is a standard of God. Is it just a random standard? Is it just a, a standard that God randomly throws out there through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Paul? No, not at all. Your call as a husband and a father It has a big picture. Do you know what that big picture is, men? It's the gospel. Your leading as a husband is a picture of the gospel. Your leading as a father is a picture of the gospel. It's not just a random thing that God commands. It is intentional because God wants your life, your marriages, and your leading as a husband and father to represent and be a picture of the gospel. It's bigger than just you and your love. It's about Christ and the gospel. Let's take a a closer look at the book of Ephesians in order to gain a better understanding of our call to lead in the home as husbands and fathers. And let me just say this. 
we are all very familiar with when you go to the book of Ephesians chapter five. I think we are all familiar with Ephesians five twenty five. Wives submit husbands love. But do you understand all of the book of Ephesians? Because if you understood the book of Ephesians, chapter five will make much more sense to you. If you understand the book of Ephesians, chapter five will make much more sense to you. The book of Ephesians has six chapters and the six chapters are divided in half. Listen close now. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are about orthodoxy. The last three chapters of the book of Ephesians are about orthopraxy. The first three chapters about right believing. The last three chapters about right behaving. The first three chapters about our calling. The last three chapters about our conduct. The first three chapters about, listen close to this, the indicatives. The last three chapters about the imperatives. In order to understand the book of Ephesians, you need to understand this. You must understand even the, the difference between indicatives and imperatives. The, terms, the term indicative and imperatives, they refer to different verb moods. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow down here. This is going to sound technical, but it's really not. Don't let the, the technical jargon, don't let that throw you off, okay? Listen close. Indicative and imperative refers to two different verb moods commonly used in the New Testament. And they are, 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 in, they are applying to teachings on sanctification. Let, let me slow down. The mood of a verb, it designates the relationship between that verb's action that's relative to the reality. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you're going to get this. We can say, or when we say indicative, it means with certainty or actuality. When we say imperative, it means a command. It's a mood command, right? The New Testament, it uses indicative statements when discussing what God has done or what God will do. Imperative statements are commands in light of what God has done. That's an easier way for you to understand everything I just said. And let me say it again for you. The New Testament uses indicative statements when it tells you what God has done. This is what God has done or what God will do. It also uses imperatives, meaning this commands in light of what God has done. It's important to realize not only that both moods are present in the Bible, but there is a there is a relationship between indicatives and imperatives. You cannot separate the two. Now, when God commands us to do or what God commands us to do, which is imperatives, are based on what God has done. Indicatives. You hear that? What God commands us to do, the imperative is based upon what God has done. Indicative. Let's go to Ephesians 4.32. I want you to see this. And then you're going to say, oh, that makes, completely, that makes complete sense. 4.32. Here's the example. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Here's the imperative or the command. Here's the indicative. Verse 32. Just as Christ in God forgave you. You see that? There's a command to you in light of what God has done in Christ Jesus. The imperative and the indicative because of what God has done or God what or what God will do. There's a number of examples in this throughout the scriptures. The indicatives, what Christ has accomplished on our behalf to the glory of God on the cross is what we find in the first half of Ephesians. 
what Christ has accomplished on the cross to the glory of God is the first half of Ephesians. Those are the indicatives, what God has done, who we are, what we are. The second half of the book of Ephesians is all about the imperatives. In light of what God has done, and and it's all been explained in the first part of Ephesians, here's how we respond. Here's how we live. Amen. There are commands of how we live in in light of what Christ has accomplished on behalf of his elect. The first half of the book, we are given a picture of who Christ is. The second half of the book, we are given commands on how to live in light of what Christ has done. Do you see how how your marriage is starting to fit into that? Because of what Christ has done here. Husbands, love your wives. We are now empowered because of what Christ has accomplished to live in a certain way in the power of the Spirit that is evidence that Christ has worked in our lives. And we cannot separate these two. If we separate the two, we will end up confusing what the gospel requires and what the gospel produces. And then we end up with works righteousness. What the gospel requires is repentance and faith. What the gospel produces is what? Obedience. Are you with me? You must keep these things at the forefront of your mind. As you are reading and studying through the book of Ephesians or actually through the whole Bible itself. Let's look at three grand indicatives, three grand indicatives or three great things that God has done. Okay, Ephesians chapter three or chapter one. Here's the first one. Ephesians chapter one, verse three through ten. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What do you notice about verses 3 to 10? Here's what you should take note of. He blessed us. He chose us. He predestined us. He lavished upon us. He made known to us. This is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. He, in his great mercy, has given to us what we could never work for. What we could never earn to achieve by our own merits and our own righteousness. And notice how Paul describes the source of election, the source of predestination, the source of all those blessings. Look what he says. Look in verse 3 to 10. Stop looking at me. Look at your Bible. In Christ, in him, in love, in him, through his blood, he lavished in Christ what Christ has accomplished on behalf of his elect. To the glory of God through the cross. This is the great indicative. This is what Christ has accomplished. In each chapter, Paul gives us overarching indicatives. Let's look at another one. Ephesians 1.22 at the very end. And what did he do? As a result of what Christ has done, 
He put all things under his feet and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The great indicative as we come to the end of this chapter is what Christ headship over his body, the bride Christ headship over his body, the bride. And there's another great indicative. As we come to the end of the second chapter, let's go there. Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The first overarching overarching indicative is what? Christ headship over his body. The second, unity in the body of Christ. The third and final is this, Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to keep or who is able to do far more abundantly Then all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever. Amen. The third overarching indicative is this. The glory that the body gives to its head. If you understand these three, you'll understand the book of Ephesians. Christ's headship over his body. Unity in the body. And the glory that the body brings to its head. Are you with me? Are you with me? When you come to the second half of the book, beginning in the fourth chapter, you see these things repeated over and over again. Now let's go to Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the church or head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Why is that even important? Because it's connected to what we just talked about. It's connected to Christ's headship over his body. Wives, your husbands are to be the heads of you. Because it is a picture of Christ in his church. As I said last week, if you struggle and say, no, I'm the boss. I'm the boss of my household. Then you are evidencing. Evidences of the fall. Because the result of the curse is this. You will rebel against his headship. I'm the boss. No, you're not. Don't even play like you are. Don't even play around like I'm the boss because you're not. Christ is the boss. And Christ has ordered your household so that your husband leads. Don't you dare disrespect your husband by saying, no, it's me. Because you're not only disrespecting your husband, you're you're disrespecting Christ. And what Christ has commanded. It's not about who's boss there. It's about Christ is boss. And Christ has ordered this. Therefore, you come under that. Amen. It is connected to Christ's headship. Remember the great indicatives of this book, Christ's headship over his body. We'll see later that marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ and his church. It is this picture. And if this picture 
of marriage is going to be an accurate one and not a blasphemous one, then just as the, as the church submits to Christ, so wives must submit to their husbands. Because we're displaying to the world the gospel. And if we say to the world, no, not him, me, then you are still showing that you're fallen. That the gospel has not come to your house. That the gospel is yet to come to your house. Because when the gospel comes, we recognize Christ is head. And when, our, when we are in our homes, we are saying, and this is a picture of that. This is significant because of the glorious picture of Christ in our families. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This is the imperative. Here's the command. And remember again, if you fail to submit, then you are in rebellion. And, and I know, let me just say, I know that's not a fun topic. I know that's not an exciting topic. But what does it do? It challenges you to die to you. It challenges you to die to you. Men, this challenges you not to be neglectful. Men, this challenges you not to be neglectful. You are charged to lead. Women, this charges you not to fall into the temptation of falling back into the evidences of the fall. To run from that. Many don't like, don't want to preach this. Because of the influence of women's liberation in the church, radical feminism in the church. And because women have been leading for so long, they're afraid to give up that leadership. If I give up leadership, this house is going to fall apart. They don't want. And, 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 and I'll tell you again, I, I said this to a brother the other day. I can't think. I think it was Arnold. And we don't also want to teach this because most of the time. The greatest population in the church is the women and you don't want to get the women mad. then you don't want to teach the Bible. You don't want to glorify God. This is significant because as you submit to your husband, as Paul says, as the church submits to Christ, then you are submitting to your head, but you're also submitting to Christ. Just like we talked about in congregationalism, you're not necessarily submitting to, to me as the person. You're submitting to the office that God has established as one of the elders here. And you doing that, you are submitting to Christ. Same thing in your home. Same thing in your home. It's about Christ and the gospel. Now let's go to the men. Husbands, love your wives. There's the imperative. Because of what Christ has done. This is how you now live in light of what Christ has done. Love your wives. Tonight we're talking about how do we lead? You lead by loving. How do you lead? You lead by loving. That's a given. Of course, I love my wife. Well, let me ask you a question. How do you love her? How do you love her? Have you defined what you think love is in and of yourself? Or have you gone to God's word and allowed God to define for you what he calls and defines love to be? It's very easy for us to define love on our own terms or according to our own understanding of what we think love is. And you must understand, and we'll talk about this in a moment, that your idea of love has been greatly influenced by the culture. Your idea of what love is has been greatly influenced by the culture. It's a sad reality that too many men, they, they wield the staff of dominance in their homes and simultaneously live in a world completely isolated from their homes. They say, I'm the boss in their homes, but they live in worlds that are isolated from their wives and from their children. For so many different reasons, men today, 
are not actively involved in their family or in family life. They have work to do. They're tired when they come home. They need to do chores around the home. They, they need to escape from the home to their hobbies of golf, to their hobbies of the gym, to their hobbies of their friends in order to keep their own sanity. They don't have time to interact with their families. They don't have time to interact with their wives, to play with their kids, to go to their kids' games, to go to their kids' school programs. But more importantly than all of those things, to sit down with them and teach them God's word. More important than all those things. And those things are great. Don't, under, don't, don't misunderstand me. Those things are great. But more important than all those things. To sit down with, the, with those kids, as my wife and I do with our son, and teach them who God is. Why? There may be a number of excuses, but when it comes down to it, fathers are making choices that, take, that are taking them away from their families, not taking them to their families. They are making choices throughout their day. They're ordering their lives in such ways that are taking them away from their families, not taking them to their families. The result of this is that, listen, many men are not fulfilling their biblical calling to lead in their homes, to lead their wives, to lead their children in the ways of the Lord. When men fail to lead in the family, the family falls apart. The family breaks apart. And it's interesting. And sad that when this happen, happens, men abandon their God-given calling to lead in their homes. They actually abandon what it means to be a real man. When they abandon their calling to lead in their home, they actually abandon what it means to be a man. You might be the strongest and toughest guy on the block. But if you can't lead your wife by loving her. You can't lead your kids by loving and discipling them. You are not a man. You are not a man. We must fulfill the calling to be priests in our homes in a way that brings glory to God. Let's notice where leadership begins. Verse 25 again. Husbands, love your wives. Three verses later, Paul repeats, husbands should love their wives. Going to the end of that passage there, again, husbands, love your wives. Love is the, the theme for this entire passage. This is the way that a true Christian behaves toward his wife. He is to love her. He is to love her in the same way that Christ loved the church. Let that keep you up at night. He is to love her in the way that Christ loved the church. The chief way that a man leads his wife and leads his home is this, by the way he loves his wife. The chief way to lead is by the way that you love your wife, men. The greatest thing, men, that you can do for your kids is love your wife. The greatest way that you can show your kids what a real man is is by the way that you love your wife. All this... All man's leadership in his home, it flows from how the man loves his wife. And it is rooted in a man's love for Christ. What do I mean by that? I said this to my wife the other day when we were hanging out. A man's love to his wife is often indicative of his love to Christ. His lack of love for his wife is a lack of love for Christ. His great love for his wife if he's a believer, is often a great evidence of his great love for Christ. We'll get more into that. 
before you apply your own understanding to the word love, we must understand that you and I have been heavily influenced by the ethos or the culture whose understanding of love is so far removed from the biblical teaching and understanding of love. So far on the other side of the world as what the Bible teaches about what love truly is. It's commonly defined as an emotion. It rises, it falls, it ebbs, it flows. It's, it's not described as a sacrifice, not a commitment, not a choice that you make, but something that happens to you. Love is just something that happens to you, something that sweeps you off of your feet, something that you fall into. Virtually every idea of the popular culture's idea of love has so conditioned us to think that way. And it is so far removed from what the Bible teaches about what true love is. When Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, commands husbands to love their wives, he does not fail to explain to us how. He does not fail to explain to us how, verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How do we love? By leading, number one, sacrificial love. How did Christ love? Christ gave himself up for the church, his bride. He sacrificed himself. Christ's love for the church is the model that we husbands are to follow in our relationship with our wives. A husband's love for his wife It's supposed to be a living illustration of the redemptive love of Christ. Christ's love is the standard. It is the archetype, and we follow that love perfectly, no. Failing always, but never ceasing to strive after it. Think about this. The bride did nothing to earn the love of Christ, did we? We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. There was nothing that we did to earn that. It was completely undeserved, but freely given by Christ sacrificially. We don't wait for our wives to do something loving so that we start to love them. That's not the way Christ loved. He loved sacrificially before the wife could ever do anything for him, the bride. And and we still can do nothing for him to earn that love. It was a love given before the foundations of the world. He has loved us with an everlasting love. Think about that. There was never a point when he began to begin to love you. He's always loved you. I say that to my wife. She didn't know that. I loved her before she knew I loved her. I was chasing her before she knew I was chasing her. I wasn't just feeding her with Chick-fil-A every other day because I got money like that. I'm going to get that girl. She's mine. I wasn't just taking her to wars every now and then because I had money like that. I was using credit that I didn't have. Why? Because she's mine. I'm getting her. I loved her before she knew it. In Acts 20, 28, we are told that Christ purchased the church with his own blood. Romans 5, 8. uh, uh, Forget that one. Romans 8, 38. We are told that the love of Christ is undying. It's unchanging. A love that we can never be separated from. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. We're going to go long tonight and you're going to have to just deal with it. A husband loves his wife with a constant love. And so does Christ his church. He will not cast her away tomorrow having loved her today. He does not vary in affection. He may change in a display of affection, but the affection itself is still the same. A husband loves his wife with an enduring love. 
It will never die out. He says, till death part will I cherish thee. But Christ will not even let death part his love to his people. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. A husband loves his wife with a with a hearty love, with a love that is true and intense. It is not mere lip service. He does not merely speak, but he acts. He is ready to provide for her wants. He will defend her character. He will vindicate her honor because his heart is set upon her. He is not merely with an eye. It is not merely with the eye that he delights now and then to glance upon her. But his soul has her continual remembrance in his heart. She has a mansion in his heart. (laughs) How glorious is that? She has a mansion in his heart. From which she can never be cast away. She has become a portion of himself. She is a member of his body. She is part of his flesh, of his bones. And so is the church of Christ forever. An eternal spouse. We are called to love our wives. In that beautifully spoken way as Spurgeon, we are called to love our wives in that way. As Christ loved the church and we confessed, we confess that we will never attain that lofty goal of loving our wives as Christ loved the church. But again, we never cease striving after that. We never cease striving after that. The Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for his bride. And we are called to give up our lives for our wives. And that is the example that we have perfectly found in Christ. Secondly, love with a purifying love. Love with a purifying love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Men, you are to love your wives in such a way that you lead her toward godliness. You are to love your wives in such a way that you lead her toward godliness, that that she becomes more and more holy as a result of, of, of her being married to you than she would if she never married you. She becomes more and more holy as a result of being married to you than she would if she never married you. And the problem is, the church and many churches that I've been in, it's backwards. The husbands are dragging and pulling their husbands. Please, please lead me. Please lead me in holiness. And men sit sometimes in church falling asleep. While their wives are desperately dying for the man to lead them. Desperately dying and hoping that the man give them some type of spiritual leadership. Give some to me, to my kids. Please do something. We're dying here. I've seen it over and over and over again. Husbands dropping off their wives. While wives go and try to make up for what's lacking in the home because he's a derelict father and husband. Sad, sad. Men, you are to love your wives. Lead them in holiness. The true beauty of a woman is not that which is external. It is that which is internal. That which is external, it's dying. It's fading away. Stop trying to save it. You never can. 
and you will not stand before the Lord one day, ladies, and have him look upon your external and say, well done, good and faithful servant. No. It will be that which happens here. And your husband has a part in that. Your husband has a part in that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. God is using you men as a purifier in your wife's life. What does it mean to sanctify her? It means to set her apart. What does that sound like? It sounds like Christ's headship over his church. Verse 27, that he might present the church to himself in splendor. That sounds like unity. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that, might, that she might be holy and without blemish. That sounds like bringing glory to God because of what's being done in the church or in your wife. See how the church brings glory to the head. So it is in your family. So it is in your home. You see that? Love your wife. Not just because you're commanded, but because she has been given to you in this union. And it is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. Your wife is a member of the body of Christ. She belongs to Christ. You love Christ with all your heart. God has been has given her to you so that you might be a sanctifying influence on her life. And finally present her to Christ. Brothers, I'm speaking to the men. That is great motivation to lead. That is great motivation to lead. It is about Christ and the gospel. Christ gave this wonderful woman to you and using you to be a sanctifying influence on her. That you may present her to him one day. Wow. God is not saying try to find emotions in your wives. Try to seek out deep affections for your wives. Not so. Paul is saying This is about Christ. She is an adopted daughter of Christ and you have been joined with her in a covenant, a covenant relationship. And God is using you to sanctify her. Are you to be the whole of her sanctification? No, not at all. But you are to play a great part. You are to be a sanctifying agent in her life. You do play a part. You do play a part. And because you understand Christ's headship. Unity of the body and the glory that goes to God in all things. You need not turn to her for some kind of motivation to love her. You only need to turn to Christ. Who has commanded you, love her and then present her to me. You being with in love with Christ. Having a love for the gospel, a desire for God to be glorified. That's your primary motivation to love. If you love Christ, you're going to want to love her. If you love Christ, you're going to want to lead her, love her. And and you don't lead to expose her sin. Bring her on. And let me show you all the things in which you are not godly. No, you are to love her in a considerate way. You are to love her patiently. You are to love her and develop communion with her, fellowship with her. Talk to your wives. Do you enjoy talking to your wives? Or is it a burden for you? I'm finding it. I'm finding out how how as as I am married to my wife coming up now on on six years. She's just hilarious to me. 
And it's because we just talk sometimes. And it's not me trying to talk to her so that I can turn on the the groovy R&B music. And it's not that motivation. It's because I love her with a passionate love. And just talking to her. Just fellowshipping with her. Just hearing about her day. Hearing how, how silly and funny she is, is. I thought I loved her yesterday. I love her more today than I did yesterday. And hopefully more tomorrow than today. Just through fellowship. Just through communion. Six years. Lord willing, 60 if he keeps me that long. I may be 89 years old. We'll see. Third, lead with a caring love. Lead with a caring love. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I love my wife because she's a member of Christ's body. But she's not only a member of Christ's body. She's a member of my body. Therefore, she's not just mine. She's me. That's the way that Paul commands that we are to love. Love her as if you were loving yourself. She's not just a part of you. She's you. Love her that way. Do you see that? We know how to care for ourselves. We know how to care for ourselves. Paul is saying care for her in the way that you would care for your own self. And I would encourage you men, go even further than that. Go even further than that. We should treat our wives with the same level of attention that we devote to ourselves. Verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. How? Just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. My, my wife and I were speaking the other day and, and we began to say. Actually, she began to say, and I was appreciative of that. That she doesn't see any, any stopping in me. Meaning this. She doesn't ever see me being satisfied with where I am in my love toward her or our son. What a blessing to hear my wife say that. I said to her as we were pulling up into the mall with everyone trying to shop that day. It was crazy. But it almost caused everything around me to stop. And I was so thankful for that kind of compliment. And it's this. Not that you buy me things. Not that you bought me the latest jewelry or the latest this or anything like that. It was the way that you love me and my son. Shows me that you are not satisfied with how that is and you are constantly striving for more. (sighs) Have I reached the level? Not at all. Am I going to stop? Not at all. As Paul said, not that I've yet attained it, but I press on. And I am so thankful that she saw that. I know I'm not perfectly. I'm not even here for, for any of you to say, what a guy. Not at all. You should see my failures. You should see the times where I am neglectful. More than I'd like to admit. But better than I was yesterday. To the glory of God. And she's there. She also said, and I'm just going to brag on her. That when you're preaching, it's not, I'm not sitting in the back shaking my head and saying, no, that's not true. No, that is you. What a blessing that is. To know that. There's someone who lives with you who could vouch for you. Praise God for that. That's what you want to strive for, men. Women who could look at you and say, yes, this is a man of God. 
Why? Because I love Christ. Because I want Christ to be glorified in my family. And I've been given that responsibility to do so. Do I have affections for my wife? (laughs) Do I personally care for my wife? More than words could describe. More than she could ever imagine. I can't even imagine my life without my wife. And I don't even want to try. She's my best friend, my lover, my confidant, everything. But you know, there are men who are not believers. Who love their wives. And love them well. There are men who are not believers who love their kids. And love them well. Here's the difference between us and them. Their kids and their wives are the end of that. The glory goes to him, to those kids, and to his wife. For us, the end is Christ. Christ gets the glory. This is a picture of the gospel. We are called to be witnesses in the world. So for the other, it's an earthly love. It's a love that goes no further than them. For us, it's an everlasting love that brings glory to God eternally. And you will stand before God one day, men. And you will give an account, not to how many people necessarily you witnessed to outside there, but to the family that he had given you inside there, your house. What did you do? How did you lead? As I said before, a man's relationship to his God is indicative of his relationship to his wife. If you see it failing there, there's something wrong here. My wife is a child of the king of kings. She has been entrusted into my care. And my desire is that that love that I have for her overflows and it is a sanctifying influence in her life. And it shows that Christ is glorious in our lives. That's our hope. Why would I stop seeking to be a better husband? That makes no sense. It makes no sense to me who don't pray, for men who don't pray for their families. Men who don't read their word in, in hopes of being a better man for their families. For God, of course, but for their family. It makes no sense how men won't even pick up a small little book like this. Maybe a hundred pages or less and read it. Being a dad who leads. Little book. I don't read good. Read slow then. There ain't no hurry. You're not teaching anything. You, you ain't got, you don't have a, a deadline. Read a page a day. Something that shows you are moving forward, trying to be better. Not just, hey, I got a job. Forget the job. Forget the job. You could be on welfare and still loving your family in a godly way. Provide. You should. Go find a job somewhere. Do anything. But if you think that the job is the best evidence of your love, you are missing the boat. It is guiding them in this that is the best evidence for your love. This is about Christ. We endure for Christ's sake. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, that the two should become one flesh. Verse 32. This is a this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and to the church. Christ gave us this woman that we may present her to Christ. You know what Christ does then? He gives her back to us and says, enjoy. We. Presented to Christ, Christ 
presents her to us. She is bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. Enjoy the wife of your youth as a gift from Christ himself. Enjoy her. Enjoy her. It's a picture of the one flesh union, sanctifying love. It is mysterious, but it is about the gospel. And isn't it interesting? The more that she becomes like the one that we love the most, Christ, he gives us back to her more like him. So that we can do what? Love her. Wow, she is so much like Christ. Thank God for my godly wife. It's a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. What are we anxiously waiting for? The return of Christ. We are anxiously awaiting the return of Christ. When we take communion, you'll hear me say, redemption accomplished, redemption applied, and one day the consummation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. What what is that? You've heard me say before the consummation. It is what the husband and wife do on their wedding night. They become one flesh. The sexual union between a man and his wife is a living expression of the union that the church is anxiously awaiting for. That euphoric thing that we are waiting for is what we experience in our marriage consummation. If that's the way you see that union, then it should horrify you if it is being abused in any other way. It should horrify you if that union is being used outside of the marriage picture and the world perverts this picture. Go do it. And they don't realize what this represents. And kids, if you recognize what this means, you will hesitate. You will be completely hesitant to join yourself with another person when you recognize this represents the great union that we have with Christ. And this this euphoric that that Christ gives us, this feeling that Christ gives us, it is to represent The grand consummation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is to represent that great day. Don't you dare abuse that. That's what it is. That's what it is. And and, and parents, don't tell your kids, run from that. Don't do it. It's bad. Don't do it. Don't talk about it. It's bad. No, it's good. And this is where it's good. This is what it's been used for. This is what it represents. And you wait for that. Because that's how glorious it is. That's how glorious it is. If we understand this, we would never pervert that. We would never make it any less than what God has intended it to be. Amen. We're going to talk more about this next week. Let's go real quick and we're going to finish with this. And a matter of fact, I'm not even going to do this. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. I'm, I was going to read it and not going to. But through that, we produce offspring from the one flesh union. God sends into our homes, listen to this, unbelievers. Through the one flesh union, he sends into our home unbelievers. Souls who do not know Christ. Why? So that we might raise them to be the best athlete on the team. So that we might raise them to get the best grades in school. All those things are great. But they are not preeminent. So that you might raise them to fear and love the Lord Jesus Christ. That you might lead your kids to the cross. Not to the greatest schools, although that's fine. 
not to the, 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 the greatest sports teams, although that may be okay. Lead them to the cross. Your kids have been placed in your families. And praise God for those of you who have more than one. You are to lead them to the cross. Lead them to the cross. Pray for opportunities to be used. And then guess what God does? Sends kids in your home. Every day. They are there for you to disciple them. And a man who does not take care to nurture and evangelize in his home is a man who is failing to lead. A man who is failing to, and they have no business in the ministry. We should be burdened down. Burdened over lost kids who have not yet repented and trusted in Christ. That should keep us up at night. I still have unbelieving kids, and we let them do whatever they want to do, because we don't want to put any pressure on them. If you don't, the world will. So who would you rather put pressure? You or the world. You do it. Call them to Christ. Call them to repent. Call them to the cross. If you don't, the world will call them to itself. And you will have a harder time bringing them out of the world than raising them as they are in your homes to love and fear the Lord. They won't go that way. They won't. They may, but God, they'll have a foundation in Christ. It's the one place where we are disqualified, Bobby, as preachers. And yet it's the one place that we care the least about. Can he preach? Cool, that's all that matters. Sign him up. Can he speak well? Sign him up. I'm guilty of that as well. This is about the gospel. This is about Christ. And Christ tells his apostles when considering a man... Look at his family. If he's failing there, he's already told you he can't handle this job. We care more about credentials. It's amazing how many men, preachers, have asked me more about seminary than about my family. Have asked me more about numbers in our church than how I am doing, my wife and I, in raising our son in the fear of the Lord. God, give us more men that are passionate about this picture of of the gospel in their marriages. Give us more men who are passionate about raising up believing children, raising up wives who are godly. Give us more men who are passionate about the gospel. We have enough seminary men, and I'm a seminary man. AA, BA, working on MDiv, all of that. But you ask me. What is my main concern before I take on any ministry endeavor? And people are not calling me to come preach. That's tell you that right now. Before anything I do, I ask myself, how will this affect my family? I don't care what kind of prestige or opportunity it is. If it takes away from my family, then it's not worth it. It's not worth it. This is a picture of the gospel. Because of what God has done, that our union with him, God receives the glory. We can love this way. We lead this way. But I never had a father to show me this. Do you have a Bible? I wasn't raised with a daddy like you were. Do you have a Bible? I wasn't nurtured or discipled the way you were. Do you have a Bible? Yes. Then you have a more perfect example of what a father is than I or you ever had. And he never failed. 
Don't you dare use that excuse. I never had a daddy. You better grow up. You better open your Bible and find out what a real dad looks like. Here it is. No excuse. The perfect picture. The only perfect picture. Of what a husband is and what a father is found in Christ. Your God is able. What's the purpose of all this? That Christ is glorified. Christ is displayed. Your family is led to the cross. How is this accomplished? Because of what Christ has done. You can love because he loved. You can lead because that's what he's called you to do. Don't forfeit that calling. Don't run from it. Run to it. Run to it. Let me say something to you else. I, I, there's, there's a young lady in here who has a father who doesn't even come here. Who doesn't even come. She comes on a regular basis. This, now this teaching, is what I pray that one day she'll be looking for in a man. I don't know anything about her father. I'm not even going to speak on that. But I pray this is what she looks for when she is looking for a man. Let me just close with this, and I've closed three times already. And those of you who are single, don't go out looking for her. She'll come. And in the meantime, serve Christ. You single people have a great opportunity because Christ is your head and you are the bride. So you submit to him. You follow his lead and you be a witness and an example in this world. How long do I got to wait? Wait until the right one comes. Don't go find an unbeliever and try to convert him. Wait for the right godly person to come and let the Lord bring both of you in step together. You want to be miles ahead of someone? You got to keep dragging them and they, they don't really want this, especially a reformed church. Ain't no lights, camera, action here. It's gospel and it's gospel and it's gospel and it's gospel. You want a, you want a wife? You want a husband? Make sure they know the gospel. They are passionate about it. Let me just stop. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Pray that this was edifying to your people and challenging, Lord. I know for all of us it may be. Give us the strength, Lord, to obey your commands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.